So let's turn to the fourth century now and the period leading up to the great council of 325 of Nicaea. And I'm quoting Florovsky here, who says, it may be said with some justification that the fourth century theological controversies were a debate over the theology of origin. As Florovsky puts it, the problem of Arian theology can be understood only in terms of the premises of origin's system. So in both origin and Arianism, we find a fear of modalism. This is coming from Florovsky as well. Eastern Fathers of the 4th Century, page 17. The struggle against Arianism was actually a struggle against originism. Now, since that time, I want to tell you that the prevailing theory among scholars has changed. Before this time, Arianism would be traced back to Lucian of Antioch and Paul of Samosata and this kind of tradition. And then the trend turned to seeing origin as the main contributor because of this question of subordinationism in origin's own writings. And now it's kind of come back to... It depends now. You could be more in favor of the origin lineage or the Antiochian lineage with Paul of Samosata and the others. But Florovsky says this, if you take the approach of the origin lineage, you're going to find that it's not as simple as that. In other words, you cannot just lay the blame at origin's feet for Arianism because both the Orthodox and the Arians at some point claimed origin. Origin in his day was a formidable figure and not only deeply influential, but very, very highly respected. Enough for Gregory the Wonderworker, Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom, to name but a few, to treat him with such great respect. But it's not difficult to see how the Arians arrived at their conclusions by not merely misinterpreting Origen's teachings, but from following his actual premises. Quote, historically, therefore, the defeat of Arianism proved at the same time to be a defeat of Origenism, at least in Trinitarian theology, unquote. That's Florovsky again. At that time, the system of origin as a whole had not yet been subjected to debate, and the general question of its validity was raised only at the very end of the century. So at the end of the 200s, origin's Trinitarian doctrine was silently renounced, and even such a consistent originist as Didymus, Didymus the Blind, was free from Origen's influence in his dogma of the Trinity. He was even further from Origen than Athanasius. So Origenism was not only rejected, but overcome. And this is the positive contribution which the Arian controversy made 
to theology. So, Nicaea 325. The First Ecumenical Council, as it came to be known, is a watershed in the history of Christianity. It's a watershed because it proclaims that the Logos is true God. One in essence or substance with the Father, while for the Arians, the divine Logos, despite their efforts by the application of various epithets and qualifications to underline his uniqueness, was clearly in the final analysis to be ranked as a creature. Let's take a look. Let's begin with the question, where do the Arians and the Orthodox actually agree? We have two points. Two points to highlight, which I think you will find interesting. Firstly, and this is again not long after Origen and his great influence, the first point that we would underline is creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Both the Arians and the Orthodox agreed against the doctrine of Origen that the world and everything in it, except for God himself, was created. So every aspect of man's being, including his soul and his noose, was clearly placed on the side of things created. Both Athanasius and Arius applied the strict line of demarcation between the created and the uncreated, differing only as to where to draw it. The Orthodox drew that line between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, while the Arians placed it firmly between God, God the Father, and then everything else, including his divine Son and Logos. So, the first point then, creatio ex nihilo. Now, this may come as a surprise because for both the Arians and the Orthodox, the Son and Word of God is at the heart, the center, in other words, of every theophany, every revelation of God, every manifestation of God has at its epicenter, as its protagonist, the Son and Word of God, the Divine Logos, the one through whom we are saved, the one through whom we are glorified, the one through whom we are deified. So through our Lord, we are saved, we are glorified, and we are deified. And so he is the source of all glorification. But is the glory by which he glorifies us his by nature or merely by grace? If we take the latter view, then the divine Logos can be no more than an exalted creature, even if we say he's the most exalted creature. 
If we take the former view, then it must also follow that he is of one and the same substance, essence, or nature with God the Father, in which case the homoousion would be meet and proper in defining the Son's relation to God the Father. Now, remember, the Arians said that the Logos had a special place. So the Logos alone is begotten of the Father directly. All other creatures are begotten through the Logos. All things were made by him, the Aftu, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's special. He's the only begotten of the Father. And as we shall see later, the Cappadocians apply the homoousion also to the Holy Spirit. So Arius, whose years are from around 250 to around 336, was probably a Libyan by birth. He calls himself a disciple of Lucian of Antioch, who died in 312, theologian and martyr and saint of the church. Lucian had founded an influential school of which both Arius and Eusebius of Nicomedia were members. And it is said that Lucian's subordinationist teachings seem to have been the immediate source of the Arian heresy. Only fragments of his works survive. The second of the four creeds put forward by the Council of Antioch in 341 was perhaps Lucian's composition. But Lucian is famous for having revised the Greek text and the researches of F.R.J. Hort and H. von Zodden in the New Testament indicated that Lucian's text is now represented by the great body of surviving Greek manuscripts and are embodied in the Textus Receptus and the authorized version. The long prevalent view that Lucian was a pupil of Paul of Samosata, you may recall that Paul of Samosata, I'm going through this lineage, Arius, Lucian, Paul of Samosata, because this is even more likely to be the source of Arius's subordinationist teachings. Paul of Samosata was a 3rd century bishop. He's known to have espoused what later is called dynamic monarchianism, that the Godhead was a closely knit trinity of Father, Wisdom and Word, and until creation formed a single hypostasis. And secondly, Paul of Samosata is regarded as a precursor of Nestorius by holding that from the incarnation, the Word rested upon the human Jesus as one person upon another, and that the incarnate Christ differed only in degree from the prophets. 
we're going to look at this when we come to St. Cyril of Alexandria, Theodore Mopsuestia, Nestorius. So the long prevalent view that Lucian was a pupil of Paul of Samosata has been disputed by F. Lufs in Paulus von Samosata, Texte und Untersuchungen, Texts and Studies, Volume 40, 1924, and G. Bardi, Paul de Samosat, Etude Historique, in Spicilegium Sacrum Lovaniense, the Studies of the University of Louvain, Volume 4, 1923. So according to Sozomen, the church historian, Arius was ordained deacon by St. Peter of Alexandria, who died in 312. And St. Peter later excommunicated him as a member of the Militian sect. The Militian sect formed by Militius, Bishop of Lycopolis in Egypt, who objected to the terms laid down by St. Peter of Alexandria during the lull in the Diocletianic persecution around 306 for the return of the lapsed to the church. He was ordained presbyter by Achilles, Peter's successor, and put in charge of Baucalis, one of the principal churches of Alexandria, where he seems to have made a name for himself as a preacher. And it was under St. Alexander that he came forward around 318 maybe 319, as a champion of subordinationist teaching about the person of Christ. Now, basing his theology on the conception of God as a perfect unity and self-enclosed monad, Arius allows for the unknowability of God. So there's a very strong, apophatic character to Arius's teachings. And basically, that pertains to God perfect unity, self-enclosed monad. There's not that much more that you can say about the God of Arius. What we're going to do is we're going to read a few of those fragments, identify the subordinationist tendency, the language in there, the theology in there, and then read two letters which... Arius himself wrote one to his bishop, Bishop Alexander, defending himself of accusations against him, and then one to his friend, Eusebius of Nicomedia. Now, in his Thalia, which was written around 320, God is described as ineffable. And let's take a look at some excerpts from the Thalia, fragments that survive, these popular songs containing Arius's doctrine. Thalia means banquet, and so this is something that Arius and his followers wrote in order to transmit their teachings on a popular level. So this is fragment three, which survives in the discourses of Athanasius against the Arians, one five, and also in an encyclical that Athanasius sent 
to the bishops of Egypt and Libya. Section 12. So fragment 3 reads, God was not always a father. Indeed, there was a time when God was alone, and he was not yet a father. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. And that's not a good translation because the word time is not used. There was a, an interval. There was a, a point when God was alone. So he wasn't always a father. And he was not yet a father. The son was not always. For inasmuch as all things were made out of what did not exist, the son of God too was made out of what did not exist. Ex uc ondon, from non-being. And as all that are made do exist as creatures and works, he too is a creature and a work. And since formerly all things did not exist, but were afterwards made, so also there was a time when the word of God did not himself exist. And before he was begotten, he was not. Rather, he has a beginning of existence. And that's the point that Arius wants to underline. He has a beginning. God is without beginning. The Son has a beginning. The word ktisma is used here. And bima. Tisma meaning creature. And bima is a thing made. Something that is made. Bidis is a maker or the maker. And it also means poet as it happens. It's interesting the connection there. So Christ the Son of God, was made out of what did not exist inasmuch as he is a creature and a work, a thing made. So you see that one of the things the Arians agreed with the Orthodox about was creation out of nothing. And they applied that also to the Logos, who for them had a beginning. So that's Fragment 3. And next we have Fragment 4 from the same works surviving in Athanasius' Discourses Against the Arians, 1-5 again, and his encyclical letter to the bishops of Egypt and Libya, 12 again, where it says, For God was alone, and the word was not with him. Seems to be written to contradict the fourth gospel. For God was alone and the word was not with him. 
Afterwards, when he wanted to fashion us, then he made him. So the Logos is the instrument by which God makes man and the cosmos. The Logos comes into existence in order for the rest of creation to be brought into existence. And that keeps the transcendent God pure and untouchable. And from the time he was produced, he called him word and son and wisdom, so that through him he might fashion us. And as all things which formerly did not exist were made to exist by the will of God, vulimadi feu, by the will of God, so also he who formerly did not exist was produced by the will of God. So everything that exists is brought into being by the will of God. And what is produced by the will of God is not from the essence. The Orthodox would say he is of the essence of God, not by the will of God. Creatures are brought into existence by the will of God, but not the very being of God himself the Son of God, who is the second hypostasis of the Holy Trinity. For the Word is not the proper and natural offspring of the Father, but even He was produced by grace. There it is, by the grace of God. So again, the grace of God the energy of God. What is the energy of God? We've said this before. It's a manifestation of the will. How do we know the will of God? By what God does. He produced the Son, according to the Arians, by His will, by His grace. Grace is an energy. Grace is the energy of God. And... It is identified here with the will. How is the will of God revealed? Well, it's revealed to us by what he does, by what he does through his energy, through his activity, through his operation in the cosmos and in the life of his creature. I know there are traditions where grace is understood in a very, very different way. You might think that grace is some kind of help that God gives, some assistance. If you go into classical Roman Catholic teaching, you'll find all kinds of sufficient grace, prevenient grace, all kinds of, all kinds of grace. But in the final analysis, grace is not understood as God himself acting and operating and being involved in the life of his creature. Grace is something, yes, supernatural, but something other than God himself. And of course, you have also on the Protestant side, it's understood variously depending on the 
the background, the Protestant tradition in question, let's say, but it's understood as a more or less as the revelation of what God wants, what God wants of you and what God wants of me. And again, it's not to be identified with God himself. Well, interestingly, we're beginning to see that the Aryans had an essence energies or an essence will, essence grace distinction. And that's of significance in itself, although their distinction is a philosophical one. And this is not easy to understand because we tend to think in rational, reasonable categories. But the orthodox distinction between essence and energies is not a philosophical, not a conceptual one. We'll say more about that in due course. But for now, it's important for us to note that there's a distinction being made here between the nature of God and God's will in the Thalia, the nature of God and God's grace.